podcast once again. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it, it both seems like a really long time since we did this and no time at all. I've kind of yeah. lost track. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's because you have COVID. That's, that's <laughs> you're, go, you're falling back COVID, into the. Yeah. You're falling back into the. Oh, time has no meaning. Phase of, time you know, has the no last meaning. Three years. Yes. Yes. Is it? Is it? <laughs> is it the year two thousand all over? And is it the year? Is it twenty twenty <laughs> again, or is it the year two thousand and three <laughs> yeah. again? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is it lockdown, or is it like my heavy new atheist yeah. kind of days? <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna do, Dan? For the listener, Dan and I were just um, <clears throat> reminiscing, musing. Musing uh, <laughs> about, <clears throat> I also have a cough. I don't know what's going on. Hopefully, I don't also have COVID. Well, let me just say up front, COVID, we're going to do COVID. <laughs> yeah. I mean, COVID I don't actually have a cough. So. Well, well, uh, yeah. I'll try and go to your relation. I'll just, okay, I'll yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to be doing our best to get through this one. Is I suppose what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? We were just reminiscing right before we hit record about. Um, We'll get to what we read here in a second, but uh, <laughs> the author for this this week's episode, whose name I believe is actually pronounced Gilbert Achkar, Achkar, I think. I said it to myself a million times, and now I already forget. Anyways, mm. I looked up uh, basically. I looked him up in interviews with him to try and figure out how to say his name, and now I've just completely forgotten. But one of those interviews was a very recent interview on Democracy Now, and we were just saying that oh, that just takes you back to a different time. <laughs> like Amy Goodman, I think is her name. I was just like, there she is. She's still, still there. It. Still has still been doing it all Noam this Chomsky. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Noam Chomsky is just like a pile of jelly. <laughs> just like Noam, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah what are you gonna do occupy back when i had my mind blown by occupy different times mm. it actually probably was when i was like going to bookstores and being like oh, no chomsky huh uh, pretty crazy stuff mm. yeah anyways these days i go to the bookstore and i have I told you about this, I think, last week. I went to the bookstore and they had two copies of EndNotes and I was like a jump scare. I was like, oh, <laughs> what is that doing outside of like my like small sphere of like things that I talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like maybe you'll have some kind of having some kind of paranoid breakdown where you think copies of EndNotes <laughs> are following you. <laughs> exactly. It's funny because I, I own two copies of EndNotes. It's one and it's five. And those are the only copies that are there. And I was just like, well, oh, someone's messing with me. And they were there like three weeks ago and they haven't been sold. I'm just like, someone's really messing it's with me It's even worse, right now. isn't it? It's yeah, even worse. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. yeah. Nobody wants them. Do? Nobody wants them. Did you go and buy I them and like them. give them to a stranger or something? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. How yeah. <laughs> to alienate just, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or ne- next time, next time, somebody from the IMT is tabling in the street. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Be like, have you read EndNotes? Mm. Um, actually, mm. yeah. Well, eh, couldn't hurt. It's um, an option. I'm just saying it. It's an option. It is an option. Yeah. What yeah. are you going to do? Only other thing I wanted to mention before we get started, Dan, is I had a very um, interesting experience of people have been talking about recently. I guess the king of this country. Gave a speech recently, and one yeah, of the yeah. <laughs> one of the you know everyone's like he was talking about the cost of living, literally sitting in a chair made of gold, and everyone's just like dunking on him for it because it's so patently absurd. And I was thinking, somebody was like, somebody said to me, they were like, "This must be especially weird for you because you're from America where this stuff doesn't happen." And I had to like lecture them about how Trump literally has a toilet made of gold and like the most garish penthouse in New York. But I did, I, this is a very banal observation, but I was just like, you know, at least in America, it's like, 
people are under the impression that they can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and get to that point. But it's just like England is so funny because it's he's literally sitting there being like, you will never have this because you weren't born into the right family. It's so funny. And people go. <laughs> it's just, oh, God, I love it. I love this country. It's so good. Just another wrinkle. <laughs> it's just like, man, hilarious. Yeah, even I sort of accept it, you know, like, <laughs> no, I'm not, not that I'm uncritical of it. It's a thing. Though. But I, I like I, obviously I'm critical of it, but I I accept it as a thing. You know, yeah. Whereas maybe maybe what it deserves is just like incredulity, I suppose. Just like, yeah, I guess. What are you gonna do though? It's like, yeah, he's just sticking his nose at us because it was it was that it wasn't like he was. I didn't get the impression that he was out of touch. I got the impression that he was just like, "Fuck you," <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like, I don't know. Elizabeth would have never done. Well, I don't know I how. Uh, yeah, well, I was just, what I was just thinking was, how did she get away with it for so long? I don't know. Do they get away with it? What am I going to do? Maybe maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Or maybe she just just been there so long that there was a sort of inertia behind her, whereas now uh, Charles is there and everybody's reconsidering what the hell it's all, what the hell is going on. Reconsidering. (laughs) I'm reconsidering. (laughs) I mean, uh, the the narrative that I sort of like absorbed um, was one where. Well, what happens is the government writes a speech and then gives it to the king, and the king reads it out. Oh, say yeah. So it's like the, it's the state opening of parliament. The king oh. reads a speech, um, all about the legislation that his government are going to enact in the next year. Um, but it's a speech that's just written by Rishi Sunak's speechwriters, I suppose. So, yeah, I don't know. Well. My, yeah, yeah. I, I have I, I often have to fight back a degree of sympathy for the royals. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> they have it rough. <laughs> well, they're just sort of anyway, I don't know, yeah. It's just sort of bad. they're just sort of like um they're they're very wealthy, unfortunate victims of circumstance, the same as the rest of Elizabeth. Mm. Uh, I, I suppose yeah, I see we're all yeah, they're just it's just the yeah. Who who was the who was the prime minister though? Relative relatively recently, there was a prime minister in Australia who I should I should look him up, but I'm not going to do it yourself, listener. Who was <laughs> deposed in a constitutional crisis? It was a Labour guy, and he was deposed basically by the English monarch by Elizabeth because there's like a post in Australia that's a supposedly a ceremonial post, but it's just like the monarch's governor or some bullshit. And he has to like approve in a ceremony the PM. I forget the guy's name, but one of them got deposed then. And I had never really taken seriously the whole, you know, well, the monarchs, they do actually have some power. You know, it's just sat in reserve for if they ever need to do it. I was like, do they? I don't know. They just kind of sit there and, you know, be disgusting. But it's like, oh, I guess they do actually. And sometimes it gets used. Like, eh, not great. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, like, um, I'm not sure about that case. Uh, it does raise the question for me. Like, I, I sort of understand why we hold on to this stupid anachronism, but um, why does anybody who was a colonial subject of ours like yes. carry on? <laughs> like... Well, we'll see. Mm. What are you going to do? Mm. It is funny being from America. It's very funny, and I kind of I appreciate that aspect of it all. But oh yeah, you know. oh yeah. Um, okay, Dan, we've had our preamble. <laughs> I should we get into what we read? We uh, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Why don't you tell me? Pretend I don't know. We we reread 
Gilbert Achkar's essay, uh-huh. uh, Religion. <laughs> I, like, I like how you, um, you've you put a lot of effort into trying to learn how to pronounce his name. And I, I, it, it didn't even occur to me that, that maybe that's something I should do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had no idea. I was like, oh, Gilbert. And then they, I yeah. was like, I just need to know the last but name. And just they were like, Gilbert. And I was like, come on. <laughs> This is going to be an episode where I just refer to the author as the author all the way. (laughs) Yes, me too. Yes. For now on, the author said this. The author. Anyway, so the author wrote a piece in a magazine, The Socialist Register, in 2008. (laughs) We're keeping up on the times here, hence why I was like watching Democracy Now! earlier. Um, Essay called Religion and Politics Today from a Marxian Perspective. And well, you know, it, it is what it is. It's trying to crumb up with like a comparative sociology for religion. I wanted to ask you, though, before we started, you had been talking about wanting to read something about religion and Marxism for kind of like a little while. It wasn't like you weren't like, come on, let's read. I want to do <laughs> religion. Like chomping at the bit. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Desperate. Unless I, you I, imply that. No. But you were interested in it. And I'm interested to know why, because it's not something that I've really, I don't know, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's a specific desire to um, sort of combine an understanding of Marxism and an understanding of religion. Um, I think more, it's perhaps a general desire to develop and reinterpret my understanding of religion. And I suppose what it means in a social context and a historical context and how to think about it theoretically. And um, obviously my first point of call with theory is, um, <laughs> is Marxism, I guess. So that's where the connection is. I mean, I, I guess. Um, I mean, I, I guess a little bit of personal biography that uh, I like most of us, I suppose, was quite an adherent of um, sort of the sort of new atheist <laughs> movement um, uh, at an age when that was appropriate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, an age for myself when that was appropriate, <laughs> and also during an age, um, yeah, a modern a period of the modern age where that was appropriate as well. Um, and then have subsequently come to sort of soften in my stance. I mean, I haven't sort of developed any particularly strong religious leanings, um, but have come to be more sympathetic toward it and want to understand the place that it holds both in the world and for specific believers both communities and individuals um yeah am i i'm correct in saying that neither of us have any background in religion no. right no, no, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're the most qualified people to talk about i mean this. the same as we have no particular background in anything that we talk about <laughs> yeah, exactly it was, i was listening to an episode of andrew Kleiman's podcast radio for <laughs> humanity today and the title of it was um basically like the politics of anti like basically the politics of transphobia and trying to track where that has come from in the United States. And I was like, oh, this sounds really fascinating. I turned it on. And the first thing they all said, it was four like guys, four straight guys. And they're all just like, so yeah, just up front, we are just like four cis guys talking about trans rights. That's pretty much what we're doing here. I don't know really anything about religion. I've never really had any background in it, but I'm going to take on the appropriate. But if you acknowledge it, it ahead of time, it's fine. Yeah, right? it's, fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I think I, much like you, I think we probably have had very similar backgrounds in this. I went to church once when I was visiting family in Australia when I was like seven, um, because they always go on Christmas, I guess, and I had to go. 
and it's the one time I've been and it fucking it, they literally made me and my brother go before we opened presents which was like the most fascist thing on the planet <laughs> hence why i've never been back to church um so yeah i don't really have any personal connection to it again like you i definitely had a religion is you know the worst thing on the planet it's the cause of all of these evils new atheist phase at a time when it was appropriate to have that <laughs> um and now i think i've very much just come around to like I don't really care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if somebody like obviously the world's religions, especially, you know, like the Catholic church and like we'll get into kind of like Islamic fundamentalism of, as well have been responsible for just like obscene horrors, but also like, I are you going to hassle somebody for being religious? You know what I'm saying? I think I'm well past that. So I did appreciate this. This was kind of not quite what I thought it was going to be. I was kind of expecting it to just be like, um, you know, religion from a marxist perspective and tell me everything i should know gilbert please you know enlighten me just bestow upon me this knowledge and it's interesting it's basically well we'll get into it it begins with a really interesting story of his like a personal story about when he was growing up in lebanon in high school and how he was like ultra marxist marxist positivist guy right and about how he was like you know the revolution is gonna usher in this great material abundance for everybody. And he tells this story about how he had this really cool high school history teacher who they'd always talk shit about like, you know, oh, I can't wait for, you know, the revolution, Russian revolution is so great. One day it's going to happen all over the world. This is in like the 60s, right? And I guess one day they had a discussion about religion and the author was like, uh, oh, I, I'm an atheist. Religion, Marxism and religion, incompatible. That shit's so stupid. In the 21st century, when we get like mass material abundance and everybody is able to do what they want, there's going to be no religion. And then he said that his like supposedly cool uh, history teacher was like, well, alternatively, what about if material abundance and like fulfillment ushered in an age of like you know, real spiritual introspection. And that just like completely threw him for a loop. He's like, what? What are you talking about? How could that possibly happen? And so I guess that's kind of his way of saying, you know, this is how we got interested in studying religion and um, specifically about what Marx and Engels both had to say about religion. Um, and then also the way he kind of frames the rest of this essay is now we're in the 21st century. Not only do we not have socialism, we have like mass, you know, poverty around the world and that actually this has led to a huge um ideological regression in terms of religion so yeah it's an interesting way of framing it i was kind of hoping that he would come around to that question more about like will socialism make people more spiritual in the broadest sense of the word he doesn't <laughs> he just kind of touches on it but it's still an interesting essay yeah it's a really interesting um uh, uh proposition i suppose and in some ways it it does stem from what he describes as marx's approach to um analyzing religion as a social phenomena um and sort of like the degree of detail he goes into around um what marx this is classic story i suppose of what marx takes from feuerbach and then what marx adds to that um uh and i think a lot of that is can also you could you could use that description of Marx as a jumping off point for a reconsideration of um, the role that re religion fills um, in human beings' sort of social psychological existence, um, 
and the question of what what that could be under communism i suppose and i think i think um contra feuerbach um and contra the author's youthful position and also contra you and i's early atheism <laughs> thanks for putting us in the same group there. <laughs> uh contra all of that um a I think a, a sort of probably a properly socialist position reflection, socialist by which I mean under socialism, position and reflection to, upon and toward religion probably isn't going to be a sort of dogmatic, positivistic, um, uh, scientistic uh, worship of atheism from the perspective of being intellectually superior being of the enlightenment um and i guess i would i guess i would pro propose and wager that those things are actually synonymous with the neoliberal age in which we live and when those positions when those ideas were triumphant it was also at the point of neoliberalism's triumph yeah i i think he's basically just saying Socialism will probably not be Stalinist state-imposed atheism, yeah. and that's a good thing, right? Because <laughs> he's basically saying, in fact, people have lost the ability to worship as they want, and he's like, obviously, socialism is going to let you do that. You're going to be able to do whatever you want. I mean, I think if we think about – I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought nearly enough about this, but I think that like, there's probably a distinction to be made between lower and higher stages of communism as it relates to religion. None of this is in the essay, but I think it's interesting to think about just in terms of like, there will still be those like birth pangs of, there will still be like organized religion, but they're going to be able to just kind of do whatever they want. And it'll probably slowly decay and evolve into just like, if you still want to worship something, then it will probably just be your thing or your community's thing. It won't be this thing that's imposed upon you by above. But my understanding of it all, or at least the way I think about it in terms of like, religion as such or spirituality and higher stage communism it, it makes me think back to the um nadrata essay that we read about you know marxism or marxist thought and native american philosophy just in terms of like a complete reimagining of what it actually means to be spiritual because like the kind of settler imagination of what native american religion or spirituality quote unquote is is like so off the mark you know, it's like, oh, you know, wow, these brave people who worship the land and they worship the buffalo. It's like it's it's just basically just racism is what it is. But in reality, like what it is, is it's kind of just like what I think Glenn, what was his name? Glenn Sean Coulthard, I think is his name, called grounded normativity, which is just like kind of what we think about when we think about ecology. It's like imagining and recognizing yourself in the web of life and kind of living your life like you exist within a broader web of life. And that's kind of what is known as spirituality. So I'm not saying that that's what religion or spirituality will be like under socialism. It could very well be. But I think that it's interesting to think about the historically specific nature of what it means to be spiritual or religious has been completely changed throughout time. And it's very historically specific and contingent. And like, yeah, if you were to consider like pre, you know, kind of like agricultural forms of worship spiritual it's completely different than what it means now and there's probably going to be some kind of um paradigm shift as well when it comes to spirituality for socialism mm. i suppose it's, it's perhaps worth my saying that um when i'm thinking about 
religion, there's an there's a degree to which the the form that I'm fixating on is um I suppose like a form of Christianity which is orientated toward um the community and the community of worship and the community of believers. Um and I th- I think there's a danger before we get into this, there's a danger of my focusing on that aspect of religion um and not sort of like opening it up to the sort of like full pantheon of possibilities um that that phrase could encompass and mean. So um a little bit sort of like pers- personal admitting of biases to begin with. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that probably gets us into what Marx actually said, yeah. right? In in um the introduction to his critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, right? This is the thing that's always um cited by Marxists and atheists and like armchair kind of like sued assholes, right? It's like it's the line about religion being the opium of the masses, which is constantly misconstrued and misapplied. Right. Um, and it's basically this idea of Marx just saying, sure, criticize religion if you want to for these kind of like, um, uh, you know, for making people resign to suffering for organizing their kind of like complacency and for being just kind of fucked up in general. <laughs> you know what I mean? Thinking about like the different forms of domination that have taken place in the Catholic church, for example. But like, he's also saying that y- you can't stop there. Like a criticism, it's the famous line that he has about the criticism of heaven has to inevitably turn into a criticism of the earth. Because as we were just saying, like r- organized religion and much like humans, don't just sit outside as an abstract entity of the rest of the world and the rest of human systems and are just their own things that are formed by themselves, right? Like they're formed by society and by the state. And it's a very like, you know, much like most of Marxist thoughts, it's like a very systems theory based kind of understanding of human society. And it is like, you know, the criticism of heaven, criticism of religion has to turn into a criticism of the society that that religion is born into. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to understand it. Like, why was the early Christian church sects of like really early communal Christianity so based on community and communalism and stuff like that uh, versus why do people in like, you know, I don't know, Missouri or some state like have crazy evangelical churches, not trying to throw shade at Missouri. Missouri is cool, but like, you know what I mean? Like these things are very contingent on the societies that they live in. And Marx is, you know, making the criticism that you can't just abstract religion away from the rest of human society. Yeah, there's, I think there's, there's an approach to the idea of religion being an opiate that can be, uh, you can come at it from two angles, right? Like there's the, there's the aspect of religion which is being proposed to be stupefying. It's sort of like false consciousness. Um, it's something that purely needs to be overcome. It's something that's um, to be criticized intellectually. I feel like that's the sort of like new atheist attack, right? Is a kind of like, this is really stupid. This is really backwards. This is something that's to be overcome and left in the past. Um, and as I understand it, that's the crux of what Feuerbach's doing and what Marx is criticizing him for is saying, well, it's not just that you should criticize religion, but 
in tandem with that, you need to have a sort of thorough critique of um, society. And so it's not just that religious is, religion is um, keeping people stupid, but also it's giving them something that's very necessary. And you have to look to what is necessary for people in their worship um, and wonder how that can be. Um, well, the question it brings up about for me is, okay, what, 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 uh, what would we construct in our um, socialist society that would be a replacement for that? Um, and it might entail um, something of a enlightenment style overcoming of mysticism and understanding of sort of like a different, more scientific understanding of the world. Um, but it won't, it won't entail a sort of like ruthless critique of the stupidity of individuals, but rather um, a creation of a different way of living communally and understanding the world as something which is collective, but connected and um i don't know like can be explained in a in a different way but in a way which has a collective narrative i suppose as opposed to an individual individualistic one yeah and and at its at its worst well i guess at its worst that kind of like individualist kind of style of religion obviously has its you know kind of like manifestation of like inner religious conflicts which are obviously again you need to like criticize earth and see where these conflicts are coming from but just on like a concrete interpersonal level you might have somebody that's like oh you're from the new presbyterian church of south uh poughkeepsie i'm from the new presbyterian church of you know west uh manicopa or something like that like you asshole die but <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it's also like you know as you're saying, the like atheist, I sit above the world and I look down upon you simpletons for your communities when it's like oftentimes it's just people like going to church on a Sunday and just like hanging out and enjoying themselves. You know what I mean? Not to say that's like the norm, but um, and then it, you can also have like the kind of atheist. Like I remember Sam Harris wrote this was one of the first times I was like, well, maybe I maybe there's something weird going on with these new atheists because he wrote like a very infamous article where he was like, um. Perhaps a nuclear, a, a preemptive nuclear strike against the Islamic world is justified because the West has, you know, had its enlightenment and we are much smarter. It's like, oh, this isn't this is this isn't fun anymore. This seems kind of <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> um, but I will say, going so then the author makes a really interesting point where he he's basically like, you need to consider exactly as you're saying, like the kind of resignation that religion offers to people to their suffering but you need to also like what is what is the phrase mark says he says it's a it's a expression of real suffering but it's also its protest and the author actually kind of criticizes marx a little bit for not expanding on that second part of it not saying that it actually can be a real protest against real suffering um and then he has a very funny phrase where he's like if marx had expanded on it the famous phrase probably would have been religion is the opium and the cocaine of the masses which <laughs> did you did you happen to read the footnote for that no. uh, paragraph he was like oh, I, I i consulted with a medical doctor friend of mine to see what a, a drug would be <laughs> my that, friend uh, told me what yeah, exactly <laughs> that would excite the central nervous system i was like this guy's an asshole <laughs> <laughs> But I think the point is well made, though, right? It's like you can easily look to history and even now to see forms of religion that not in the best way, but are organizations for a type of progress. 
And he kind of tries to show the two different types of religion, the opium at its worst and the cocaine at its maybe close to best that we've had in the last century in studying the two that he puts forward here for kind of a comparative critique of religion, which is Islamic fundamentalism kind of from the 1970s on and um, Latin American liberation theology. Although when he talks about liberation, he's like, now I will discuss liberation theology. Yeah. And then he spends the entire time talking about German peasants and then doesn't mention liberation theology. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Okay. I, thought, I thought this was, the, I thought they were going to be his two cases, right? And he sort of proposes yeah. it like that. But in some ways, that's actually to the virtue of this text and it makes it more readable now um, in that uh, sort of contrary to the way we're presenting it, it isn't necessarily stuck in the debates of the early 2000s. I think it it is a very historical and theoretical text and it's not um it's not focused on uh cases that are in some ways irrelevant to the world that we live in now um but yeah certainly those are the two cases that he presents and i i've there were i I don't know about you i did have some difficulty in trying to work out whether i accepted the arguments that he was making or not and we'll get into those in a minute i suppose as i was reflecting on it before we started I sort of feel like what he's actually doing um, is quite a laudable kind of historical materialism, I suppose, where he's both outlining how certain historical facts about the origins and development of, in this case, um, Christianity and Islam in their sort of like uh, world historical uh, forms, I guess. Although he does reference certain other uh, religions as well, and sort of describes a uh, more historical materialist understanding of their origins and how their origins affected their um, historical appearance and development in the world. But he's, I feel like he's he's treading a tightrope, which I think he does quite well, where he's both not saying that history in the context of these two world religions is fully deterministic of their social and political uh, qualities, I guess. But it is in some ways, it contributes quite heavily to uh, how they appear in the world, I guess, if that makes sense. And so there's the fact that he's making certain, seeming to make certain somewhat sweeping statements about uh particularly the historical origins of islam and how they contribute toward um a degree of affinity with sort of reactionary politics um is a troubling proposition when you read it and one that um one might naturally want to be repelled by but i think there's he's clearly not being prejudicial um in his attacks, but rather just descriptive. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was kind of trying to figure out what it, at the end of this, it, I appreciated a lot of what he's saying, but then at the end of it, it was kind of like, is, did he just say nothing? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because he's like walking this tightrope so finely. And then is eventually just like, because, you know, I was trying to figure out if he was saying, are a lot of these forms to take islam for example of like rea- what he calls reactionary medieval the reactionary medieval utopianism of islamic fundamentalism right like is he saying that 
the origins of Islam as a, as a religion and its ideology have kind of determined a lot of the different historical consequences of like the Muslim world's, I suppose, like their actions and their interactions with the rest of the world. Is he saying that like the ideology has kind of determined a lot of that? Or is he saying that the different religious forms that Islam has taken have served as a kind of like a vessel for these different movements. And he's kind of trying to say both. Maybe we should kind of like get into the specificities of what he's talking about with each of these. Because you, you, I think you said it. He meant he brings up the phrase elective affinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we talk about Christianity first. Yeah, he's basically, I, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah go, well, go on. Just simply that um, his discussion of Engels, his writings about the peasant rebellions of the sort of like middle and late medieval periods were some of the most interesting parts of this text for me. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll start with Christianity and what he means by elective affinity is he's kind of trying to say that because Christianity, like, like Jesus times and like all the apostle times was founded, but you know, classic, which is to say like Jesus times. <laughs> yeah. We're talking year one, baby. Like, because that, and you know, the kind of like middle Roman empire, because it was kind of founded as this, you could communistic esque kind of like uh, religion of the downtrodden, and like you know a persecuted sect of people who were, you know, already part of a persecuted sect in the Holy Land, right? Um, because of that, there's kind of like this, what you know, an elective affinity. There's an affinity between Christianity at times throughout history and a kind of socialist politics and a kind of like religion of the downtrodden, right? And so this is, you know, it's very obvious when you think about liberation theology, um, you know, the religion of the downtrodden and kind of like the different writings about suffering that kind of came out of liberation theology. Um, And so he says that there's an elective affinity between original Christianity and the kind of like he calls communistic utopianism. And again, instead of actually talking about uh, liberation theology. He goes into talking about German peasant revolts of the 15th century, but it's the same kind of thing, right? He talks about how these were peasant revolts that necessarily had a Christian character to them because of the time that they were in, because the ideology of the times was so dominated by the church. Um, but also because they were kind of a lot of these uprisings, though not all of them were able to latch on to the early kind of like you know, communistic utopianism of early Christianity is kind of like something that they wanted to go back to. And he also ties in, which I thought was interesting, that a lot of these people were witnessing like the loss of their kind of like village communal Germanic ways of life um, to kind of like the onset of capitalism and just further exploitation, heightened exploitation by the nobility. And we're kind of like in a similar way to the Russian Rodniks, like trying to like go back to something new, right? Um yeah, I'm interested to know what you make of all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, to begin with, yeah, that there is a there is a similarity he's pointing out between both of these um, forms of religious inspired protest, whether they're whether it's the medieval peasant who has some kind of desire to go back to some kind of idealized form of peasant community life that is being stripped away by the onset of capitalism. Um, and there's a degree to which what he's saying is there is a similar kind of desire amongst 
um, adherence of a fundamentalist approach to Islam that wants to go sort of like has a sort of like utopian view of a certain medieval societal form that they want to get back to one of them being quite reactionary and one of them being um potentially more communalist communalistic they're both utopian in that they fantasize a world that didn't really fully exist um and as a form of protest against the the present world they sort of look backwards um there is what's quite interesting to me is like he makes this critique of Engels, right? Um, and he, he's critiquing a youthful Engels who um, suggests that the medieval peasant, um, in their sort of like political protest against the political economy, the social structure of uh, medieval life, sort of like dresses up. Um, they sort of they they use it. He uses this phrase of mask and a flag, sort of like it. Where they wear the mask of uh, early Christianity. Um, but what Engels is saying is that that politics is motivated by a sort of like uh, a, a sort of primitive socialist or communist desire that can't fully be realized because. The sort of like uh, dialectic of history hasn't fully unfolded yet, and we haven't got to capitalism, which is the necessary uh, component which allows for communism to develop. Um, what idiots! Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so exactly. Um, Engels in his new atheist phase <laughs> is <laughs> is crit- critiquing these stupid peasants for not realizing, so sort of for being backward looking rather than being progressive and forward-looking um he has a phrase for it i can't remember what it's called but it's it's um suitably infantilizing of the political desire of uh the various peasant revolts um what the author of this text does is fill in a lot more of the historical detail that's necessary to understand more fully what's actually happening in the myriad peasant revolts that span like hundreds of years of history. There's constant peasant revolts all the way through the the high point and the collapsing phases of feudalism. Um, what the author of this text does is really criticizes and pushes back against Engel's understanding of them simply wearing the garb of utopian Christianity. Um, Engels is sort of saying they they couldn't help but interpret the world through religion because that was such a constitutive element of um, the world in which they lived. It was a necessary religious one. The author of this text says, well, actually, no, there were some peasant revolts that didn't really take on a religious form at all. And there are some that did take on a very religious form um, there. And then he references Thomas Munzer, has been, has, his rebellion in Germany as being one of the most um, progressive, one of the most... Um, sort of naturally communistic critiques of um, feudal society as taking the form of uh, a Christian heresy. Um, Engels is saying that basically all of these peasant revolts took the form of a heresy because they were critical of the Christian world in which they lived and they looked backwards to an earlier utopian understanding of what Christianity was. Um, The author of this text is saying 
there is much there's something much more fundamental happening there are nuances in all of these different um protests the argument that he's trying to make is it's not that the peasant rebel against feudal society who dresses themselves up as a christian communist um is pretending to be a be a early christian communist because what they want to do is advance or regress towards some kind of more socialistic form of existence but no he's making an argument the author of this text is making an argument for there actually being an elective affinity as we've just been saying um there is a natural historical connection there is a sort of causal mechanism that makes certain types of christian protest more inclined toward um a certain type of um affinity to communist society i guess all it takes is for someone to say heresy in something we read and yes. i'm like should i get a sister's novitius yeah. <laughs> That is God telling me. To yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, we do this every time, right? Every time we encounter <laughs> medieval religion, we just see it through the lens of um, the, the 41st millennium. But we are subjects of capitalism, Dan. Yes, what else can we do? Yeah, how can how can I we put into <laughs> exactly? Yes, how can we but interpret theory in terms of things that we consume? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, oh God, that's grand, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, I think I think we should pause really quickly here just to kind of talk about um, what we talked about when we read the James Connolly stuff about um, Celtic communism, right? About there's a short discussion here. Short, I literally mean like two sentences, where the author kind of mentions that it isn't particularly good to just do what Engels does and be like, this is a reactionary class. It can't, it, it's not the industrial proletariat. Therefore it's never going to do communism, right? Like there's no real reason to assume that even these German peasants couldn't have done something like communism. And he mentions the Vera Zazulich letter, right? That Mark sent to Vera Zazulich about when she was like, well, what about the peasant mirror? What about this? You know, people like having communal property still at like, you know, the onset of capitalism. And Mark's like old Marx. It was kind of just like, yeah, sure. Why not? I don't fucking <laughs> yeah, know. Why not? why not? They seem cool. <laughs> and I, I really like the phrase that he uses here. He says, um, this is basically coming off of him describing, well, I'll just read this bit. He says, in both cases, these were very specific instances of what Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto characterized as reactionary attempts by fractions of the middle class to roll back the wheel of history. However, as Marx would acknowledge many years later in the Russian case, in such instances where commitment to past social forms means preserving collective property, holding back the wheel of history could give, through a spring effect, a powerful impetus for a major leap forward, theoretically at least. Theoretically at least. Like, yeah, in theory, this could happen. Um, but yeah, again, like there's no reason to turn up your nose and be like, no, no, everything that isn't, you know, a ripped muscly male worker in a factory, uh, you know, that has progressive socialist politics, no one else can do the, uh, do communism, right? Like it has to be the industrial proletariat. Um, there's no reason to think that. Um, and again, you got to work with what you have, like, especially politically. So, you know, yeah. We're going to be like the one guy being to the German peasants. Like, have you considered exchange value versus use value? But yeah, I like that. The spring effect. That's something that I'll be thinking about, I think, for a while. It's yeah. a good phrase. Yeah. I mean, 
what a lot of this is maybe it's too soon in the podcast for us to have this discussion but what a lot of this <laughs> we are 45 minutes in what the hell um what a lot of this made me think about is well i sort of made the made the decision the realization that i'd much rather have a so, form of socialism that was born of um a sort of christian desire for uh a community well, a, a communal, a communalistic form of life, um, both socially and economically, that was born out of an understanding of existing within a collective community of believers, I suppose, having that be the binding thing which holds society together. Um, I'd sort of much rather have a, have a form of communism come out of that than a form of communism that comes out of Stalinist um <laughs> atheism by the boot and the mustache or yeah. you know richard dawkins-esque like enlightenment <laughs> bomb the middle east you know like, exactly yeah um yeah i don't know and also what it made me think about quite a lot of and this is a discussion for the end of the podcast probably is um uh what form uh a socialist movement might take and what form a socialist society what th- ideological constructs might bind a socialist society together and in what ways would might they be reminiscent of um collective religious practice of i mean of of any religious group right but like that old that sort of thing about like marxism in some ways being analogous to or socialism in some ways being analogous to a form of religious worship or um yeah i don't know (laughs) Well, I think honestly, like, and this will probably get us onto a conversation about fundamental fundamentalist Islam is like, what is it that churches provide for people? Like in, in America, um, like fundamentalist churches haven't always been as big as they have been for the last, like, I don't know, 50 years, something like that. Right. Like 50, I don't know, 50 to a hundred years. Like there was a concerted effort on behalf of like Grover Norquist to shut down all of the union houses and union halls in middle America and basically just replace them with churches. Right. Because it's like, you know, back then people used to go hang out at the union hall and that was their hub for community. So when we think, and now they've just been replaced by like, I don't know, my imagination is just like, they're all like snake handlers, which is obviously not true, but I think that's very funny to imagine that. It's like, you just have to think about what is it that religion provides people and what can socialism do to fill that void? Because when we talk about liberation theology, the church was compl- the Catholic Church was completely filling the void of a kind of like organized mass lev- left wing movement in a lot of cases, and was and already had the kind of like um, infrastructure to have places for people to meet and for people to get to know each other every Sunday and you hang out and you see your neighbor and you do something other than just fucking go to work and then come home. You know what I mean? Like you actually have community and you have like feasts and stuff like that. Like, and it's a, it's a similar thing for fundamentalist Islam. Like he, you know, radical fundamentalist Islam grew out of the void left of, he calls like the decomposing corpse of any kind of progressive movement in a lot of Muslim countries. Right. Um, Obviously, you can look to things like Hamas and Hezbollah, but it's also like it's very obvious for Iran after the Iranian revolution and after um, 
who's the guy that got deposed? Mosadeg. It's like yeah. incredibly obvious that, you know, competing foreign powers went in and just completely dismantled anything that existed that was a left wing movement. And all of a sudden, the only people that are left, even like even dismantling, not just like communist movements, but like middle class nationalist movements, right? Like you think of like Nasser, who was one of the fundamentalist biggest um, enemies, right? Like once all of that is gone and it's been dismantled, the only people who are preaching a anti-Western, anti-imperialist sentiment are these fundamentalist radical groups because those are the only things that have been allowed to grow or fester kind of in these places, right? Like, you know, it's it's fairly easy to see kind of very tragically what it is that religion is offering people in a lot of these circumstances. And, you know, Christianity, Islam, like all sorts of different religions, what they're offering people that they don't have, it can be as practical as a place to see other humans that you don't work with on a Sunday, but it can also just be like, I mean, something much more, it's a much more bigger deal, which is like, you know, anti-imperialist organizations, right? Like, you know, it's a bummer. Lose, lose situation. Yeah, my, you've sort of just implicitly brought up an answer to a question I was going, of yours that I was going to answer from half an hour ago, which was, um, are, are, is a certain, uh, is this, um, is there an unavoidable is is the elective affinity that's being proposed in this essay between Islam and a certain type of uh, reactionary conservatism, utopian conservatism? Is that unavoidable? Is it fully determined? Well, there's one fundamental element that has very little to do with the nature of Islam. It's about the sort of like historical intersection between parts of the Middle East and the west and that sort of like historical political relationship the one that's necessitated a search for a force which is going to repress any uh emergence or growth of left-wing movements and tendencies um in the middle east but also one which is going to promote a form of government which is going to pursue in, well, it, in some, it's, it's different, right? In this essay, he he says there are sort of two forms of um, fundamentalist, sort of like conservative fundamentalist Islam that have developed, one represented by Iran and one represented by um, Saudi Arabia. And the, the form that, that emerges in Saudi Arabia is one which is very conducive toward meeting Western interests, but is supported by the West entirely because of its willingness to take on an autocratic form and be uh, ultra conservative and repressive of um, any progressive movements because it sort of like meets Western ends kind of thing. So there's nothing, in some ways, it's and it, it's fully um, explained in this text, right? The author of this text is saying this that it's through an engagement with the world, it's an engagement with the West. Which has contributed very heavily to the state of political the, the the state and the nature of the political system in um, the majority of Middle East countries, Muslim majority countries now. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting, and it's funny when he gets onto the kind of flag and mask stuff, criticizing angles. I thought it was I really appreciated what he said about like you need to recognize again, like Mark said, you need to recognize that religion can be used as an oppressive tool, but it also is you can't just write it off completely like that because it also is an identity marker of the oppressed 
And to be fair, he does give um, credit to different forms of um, Islam that have been kind of like progressive institutions in the past. I mean, it's funny because a lot of this didn't necessarily jive with what we read when we were talking about Turkey, the Lauren Goldner piece, because a lot of that was like he Goldner was kind of almost trying to make the point that there was an elective affinity between socialism and Islam. Right. But I don't know. We see where that went. I mean, he, there is a footnote here where he quotes somebody else is talking about the Quran. And he says that, who is this, this author, somebody else, somebody else who's quoted as saying in footnote 19, as saying that the Quranic letter, if submitted to a literal reading can resonate in the space delimited by the fundamentalist project. It can respond to one who wants to make a talk within the narrow, the narrowness of these confines, but for it to escape, it needs to be invested with the desire of the interpreter. So he's making an argument that I don't know necessarily how much I agree with, just because I don't know enough about it. He's really coming down on like Islam, if left to its own druthers, it seems, is going to be a like more open to fundamentalist readings than other religions, and especially Christianity, which maybe, but then he also in the kind of the same breath is also like, but at the end of the day, the thing that determines all of these is the class struggle. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's like, it can actually take any form. So I don't really know. I don't know what he's saying, if anything. You know? <laughs> um, well, there's, there's one thing that I wanted to say, but I might save that for a minute. And um, maybe what we should talk about is what, what he, what it is that he's saying about the historical emergence of Islam that he thinks contributes to this elective affinity between um islam and sort of like utopian reactionary politics um he's saying that in stark contrast to early christianity which as you pointed out like emerged from um communities who are sort of marginalized within even further marginalized communities you know they were kind of like the totally dispossessed the totally out outsider um they were um sort of like led by um sort of like the histo like the can't remember the phrase that he uses like some particular way of describing the almost like cult like nature of the leadership the sort of like um the nature of them the sort of like christians as prophets but also a form of politics which was um in a lot of ways kind of millenarian in early christianity like there was this sense that the world was coming to an end and there was a degree of removing oneself uh, from the day-to-day -day politics of um the state i guess um the way he describes the emergence of islam is in stark contrast to that is as a state building project as a sort of like martial project that um selects military leaders to also be religious ones um and he's saying that that kind of ideology is replete and reproduced throughout many parts of the religious texts of islam now i haven't read the quran i haven't read the bible i don't know whether the truthfulness of that but that's that's the nature of the argument that he's making um the other point that I wanted to make, and it sort of became apparent to me when I was sort of like talking about Christianity in this sort of like slightly lofty utopian way, which evidently comes from somebody who wasn't raised in um, 
any of the mainstream Christian traditions of the 21st century world, right, or the 20th century world, um, or or even or even the medieval world. Evidently, I wasn't related, wasn't raised within a medieval church, right? But you can. I'm sure there are many people who have been raised within Christianity and found it to be nothing but uh, repressive, uh, doctrinaire, conformist, reactionary, right-wing. Um, there are many Christian uh, right-wing fundamentalists in the same way that there are uh, Muslim right-wing fundamentalists. Um also, one of the things that he says in this text, obviously, Christianity ceased to exist in this early communistic, communalistic form and became first the state religion of Rome and then the official state religion of all of Western Europe um, and one which formed the foundation and bolstered the sort of like class society of feudal Europe, right? So it's not as if Christianity, no, nobody's laboring under the misapprehension that Christianity um, in the bulk of its existence has taken the form of rebellious, radical uh, adherence to communism. Um, and the author of this text makes the point that there were many centuries of the existence of both Christianity and Islam in the world where Islam took up the form of being the far more progressive um, historical force, you know, like, um, and so clearly that there are other forces at play. Um, clearly, it's not the case that the Muslim world is incapable of creating states which are um, progressive, democratic, I don't know, sort of like progressive in the context of the form of class society that exists is what I'm saying. Like, um, we, we're all aware that there were periods of time where the Muslim world was far more knowledgeable about science and um, mathematics and all sorts of different things. So it's by no means the case that we or the author in this text is saying that Islam is somehow backwards and Christianity somehow communist and progressive. Yeah, and I think this is the thing that was kind of conf uh, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit about this this text because it's like he brings forward this idea of the elective affinity, but it's like I don't know. Scientifically speaking, it's like is that just whatever you want it to be? Because it's like when something happens in history where you have a liberation theology or you have a like reactionary Islamic movement, you can be like, oh well, you know, or like reactionary militant movement, you can be like, well, there is the elective affinity. But then when Christianity, as it has done many times before, is the face of like something horrific and militant or Islam, conversely, is the face of like being a religion of love as it is for practically everybody that practices it that isn't using it for a political project, like you go, oh, that's just not the elective affinity. And I definitely see what he's saying, but it's like, I don't know, to what it, like, I don't know, to a certain extent, maybe this is just my new atheism coming out again, but it's like religion really is whatever people practicing it want it to be. You can, you can read the Bible and ignore all of the fucked up shit. You can read the Quran and ignore all of the fundamentalist stuff and still call yourself a Christian or a Muslim, right? And so it's like, 
to what extent does the affinity of these different religions actually weigh on people's minds as they're practicing it? And to what extent, like, I don't know, I guess, I guess this just brings us back to Marx because it's like, you have to then stop criticizing the heavens and bring yourself back down to the society that these religions are born into. And then I guess, but then it's like, I don't know, but then what does elective affinity mean? You know what I mean? What, like, I don't know. What what relationship does it actually have to the practicing movement? I don't I don't really understand. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I know either. One of the things that's just become I've some I've become very aware of is maybe there is a degree to which this text is very much dated to 2004 kind of thing. <laughs> like maybe the arguments that he's making are designed to describe the political movements. Um political and religious movements and states as he is looking at them in the early part of the 21st century right like um that said uh, there i think it i think it i think i'm pleased to have been exposed to the arguments that he's making um and i think maybe there is something very useful in identifying things within Islam as a re- religion which um, contributed to the formation of the nature of the states, the sort of Muslim majority countries and how they operate their politics and their state forms now in the 21st century. Um, there is a valuable piece of historical materialist analysis being done in this essay, I think. Um I think it's just it just comes down to how deterministic one wants to be in one's analysis, um, and I don't think he's being desperately deterministic. I don't think he's like um, he's not saying and there is some the, there is this there is X quality which is fundamentally true of this group and not of this group on the grounds of their religious belief. You know, um, he's definitely not saying that. But. Yeah, and I guess maybe I'm like conflating the people practicing the religion with like the different political projects that they get caught up in. And maybe that's his point when he talks about the elective affinity, like, I don't know. Oftentimes, even in like reactionary, say for example, like Christian projects, there is a kind of populism going on that is based around that kind of like original Christianity of the people, you know, you put a rich man through an eye of a needle kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I suppose it, it it's it's easy to conflate that, but that isn't what he's talking about. And I guess I do need to remember that. Um, the one more footnote. I don't know why I'm reading out all these footnotes, <laughs> but what, one interesting thing I thought, which was basically like, it's one sentence, and it's basically him summing up how this relates to having a socialist politics. And he says, even on the issue like that of even on an issue like that of abortion rights, the ideological struggle can be fought without putting into question the spiritual convictions. And I think that's actually like a really useful bit of advice for socialist organizing now. Um, it's not about meeting people halfway, but it's about, it's kind of just like about picking your struggles. It's like, you don't need to tell somebody, you know, mm, you worship an old man in the sky, you fool. If you want to be a socialism, you can't do that. It's like, there's no reason for that. And you can call into question the like kind of, you know, sketchy political conclusions that a lot of religions have you know, for political reasons, whether that's abortion, whether that's LGBT rights, whether that's whatever, right? Like without 
hassling people about having a community. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that that's really fair because there's no point. There's like really no point. You can be religious and be a socialist. It is as simple as that. Like we would like to see people put, you know, socialism first. And one would imagine that if that happens, they'll be able to find a new community and one that offers them all of the same things that they find in their religion. At the end of the day, like just don't hassle people. <laughs> I think that's kind of his conclusion. It's just like, don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always good political advice for sure. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. A lot of people organizing. I'm not sure they really have that. What are you gonna do? Um, I want the only, the only other thing I'd like to say is that I did think it was interesting where he basically said that both of these, um, religious forms, liberation theology and Islamic fundamentalism. Most religions, actually, both what they're trying to do is bring heaven to earth as opposed to criticizing heaven and then criticizing earth. I thought that was a really succinct, good way of putting it, right? Like whether it's reactionary because they're trying to build, you know, a communistic utopia based on religion or a reactionary medieval utopianism, which that phrase, Tolkien would have been very proud of that phrase. I was reading that. I was what like, was the wow. Phrase? Medieval reactionary utopianism. Reactionary medieval utopianism. I was like, that is just that, the Silmarillion. That's, that's all yeah. that is. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that is the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, yeah. Brother Tolkien. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I did think that was quite interesting. Yeah, it is interesting in the sense that like, um, there is an interpretation of state religion which offers sort of like salvation in the afterlife and has very little to say about um, uh, human beings like present state of existence right and so like that it, it but it also it would make sense if both of these fundamentally like interventionist approaches to religion um, desire to bring about some kind of I don't know, religious state on earth, sort of like. Yeah. yeah. He he makes a really interesting point where he is like both socialism and religion promise salvation through themselves. But he was like, while Christianity specifically preaches salvation after death, he's like socialism is about salvation through transformation mm -hmm. of the current society. And I was like, Hell yeah. <laughs> I was like, that rocks. That's really good. One other thing to say too is when I, just a personal anecdote, when I was in, I want to say like middle school, middle school or high school or something, one of my best friends was Catholic. And once a month we would go volunteer at a soup kitchen and it was really cool. It was really fun. It was a soup kitchen for like homeless people. Right. And it was really, really fun. But it was at, unsurprisingly, the Catholic church. And it was like, why was it at the Catholic church? Because nobody else was doing it. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, so, you know, yeah, it is what it is. Set up new institutions. That's all we're saying. But also, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. I wasn't, like, turning up my nose. Like, oh, it's tinged with Catholicism? I don't think I'll be going. Did you, um, I don't know whether to bring this up because I didn't really do the research, but did you, <laughs> did you read the footnote about this guy? I think his name was Eugene Belfour Bax. Oh, I did not. No, the, so the uh, the the author just refers like quotes one of his like a seminal text about the peasant revolts, and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. I better look this guy up. <laughs> and he was um, a British like social democrat socialist, quite had a had a affinity with the left, but also Wikipedia describes him as an early men's rights activist. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> no. 
<laughs> and I really, I mean, uh, it, it, it warrants more research. Go out and go out and Google this person, people. Why not? We should oh, go and God. do it. But like, um, scrub my browser like, history after. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just sort of very confused. I tried to understand the arguments that this guy was making, where there was some kind of like women were somehow in some kind of superior position at the end of the 19th century. But but I, but he, they're he, like, please let us vote. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, feminism had gone too far even in um, yeah. 1890. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Men's uh, rights activism. Characters. What a cursed phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I had no idea it had such a long story to um, Yeah. Lurid history. Yeah, lurid. I remember being legitimately like thrown for a loop when I would like went back and checked in on some of my like new atheist faves and saw that they were just reactionaries. I was like, wait a minute, but that but what? Huh? How did that happen? And then I was like, oh, okay. It's like this intellectual superiority of like, basically Maybe they will always be actionary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the scary part. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? All I know, Dan, is that evolution is determined entirely by the self gene. That's oh, all okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, also that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, all right. Good. Um, that's it. Yeah, we've done it. We've done it. Um, Lovely. We got there. We got there. Another, Next another, episode. Another fine episode. Yeah, another episode fine 99 episode. in the bag. In the bag. Next episode, episode 100, expect something huge. <laughs> oh, no, I, we did this about something. I feel like it was like episode 50 or something where we built it up for a really long time and then we just did nothing. Did nothing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. The, yeah. yeah, the listener can be reassured that we um, similarly likely of <laughs> having have nothing, no nothing special in the bag. Yeah, yeah exactly. Who knows? Oh, well. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe we'll read some men's rights activism. Yeah, yeah. Or better yet, we'll read State and Revolution, yes. like we've always been like promising. We've always said we will. We did. You know, we did like 70 episodes ago. We both bought, I think you already had it, but I got, because we were going to read it for the show, the Erford program. It was never dead. Hmm. Okay, yeah. two weeks. Two weeks to get through the Airford program and sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> mm. yeah, we'll, well, we'll come up with something. Rest assured. There'll be an episode, listeners. sure. We'll come up with something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, might we might just skip 100. We might skip right to 101. <laughs> that would fix things because we um, actually, it will, like we since we did an introduction episode, Oh, this is episode 100. Is Technically, that's not the number. 100. So that yeah, would actually yeah, fix yeah. things. We yeah. just skipped it. But you know, I don't know. no, it wouldn't because then we just go to 101. For, or would it fix? I don't know. I don't know. I took a philosophy <laughs> class in college for my math credit. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> wow. Uh, cool. All right. I was too busy hassling religious people on the internet to, to understand math. God's okay. work. You were doing God's work. Indeed. Um, I'm going to go do a COVID test, Dan. I don't think I have COVID, but unless you've given it to me over the internet. Then, over the internet. Yeah. yeah. Mm, we'll see. Well, I'm not going to do a COVID test. <laughs> um, I'm just going to keep telling people I have COVID regardless. <laughs> yeah, for the next three weeks. Yeah, I've just got yeah, COVID. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I'm done with COVID tests. And, uh, yeah, they suck. Like, yeah. Work gave work, like, actually, in a stunningly cool move, gave me, like, a. Uh, 14 free tests uh, it basically you, it was then you like check the sell by date and it's like 
actually though it was like two weeks it's like what am i gonna do a test a day like it's <laughs> like yeah to be fair so, yeah, they, just, they, had to they were like you're gonna be around a lot of people so it's just oh, like, for oh, a particular period of time okay. yeah and okay. it was like or i could just not yeah <laughs> so, yeah whatever yeah you're gonna be in contact with a lot of snotty students in the next few yeah, weeks bastards so. yeah, exactly you know, well, I, don't, I do my best to hide. I'm very, I've gotten very good at hiding. If you ever want to learn how to hide at a job, get a job in a warehouse and then get an office job. It's so much easier to <laughs> hide at an office job. What are you gonna do? Anyways, well, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can this be episode a, 100. That can All be our top, top tips for shirking work. Fucking good. That's socialist practice. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Yes. See you later. Get some sleep, please. Bye bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Oh,